It was never, ever God's intention for death to come into the world. The Bible says sin entered into the world and death through sin. And of course, a lot of evangelicals have abandoned that truth. Bruce Walkey, a few years ago, a Hebrew scholar, so-called evangelical, now adopts theistic evolution like many local evangelical churches because we want to warm up to the world and buddy-buddy with them. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the Revelation, we've begun to unravel a prophetic scroll that consists of seven sequential seals, each seal revealing a series of judgments executed on the world during the time of tribulation. We've noted that the first four of these judgments will be delivered by a rider on a horse. The Antichrist will come on the scene on a white horse. War will be widespread, brought on by a rider on a red horse. And following the ongoing wars, a rider on a black horse will bring the judgment of famine. And in turn, a rider on an ashen horse will bring death. It is that rider we are studying this week. But as we return, Dr. Brogy, by a matter of review, reminds us of the ways of the black horse rider of famine and destitution. Now, very clearly, it's not by accident that the black horse follows a red horse because famine invariably follows war like night follows day. Again, we're going to discover that this is the precise order that Jesus gave of the events in the Olivet Discourse, and I'll show you that in a few moments. So this rider comes on a black horse with a pair of scales in his hands. That's a reminder to us that during the tribulation period, there will be severe shortages and that food will need to be rationed. Now, we know very little of that in our day, especially in America. Even in America, if you're poor and the cupboards are empty, you can usually go somewhere in any given day to get a good meal to fill your belly. But after the white horse, after the red horse, Famine is going to come upon the earth. Millions and millions of people are going to die from hunger. And with inadequate diet comes disease and despair and death. Again, we know little of that. But when he broke this third seal, the Bible says that this rider on the black horse had a pair of scales in his hand. He has some good old-fashioned scales, something we don't use much anymore. And notice what this rider is saying. Verse 6, and I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, the Greek word here for quart or measure in some of your Bibles represents the size of enough milled wheat in the first century to bake a single loaf of bread. And it would take a denarius which in the first century was the average full-day pay for, for a 10-hour day. It would take a denarius to be able to buy at this time just a single loaf of bread. So think about that. Now, the average family in America, 2.4, and the birth rate, according to our government last week, says continues to drop, is small compared to other countries of the world. The Middle East, where it's 7.5, in Africa, where it's 5.6. But think about it. A man works hard all day. 
He can buy one loaf of bread, and it needs to feed not only him, but the whole family. A quart of wheat for a denarius, or he says, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Wheat is the food from which most bread was made. Unless you were poor, you used barley. Barley was the grain that was used typically to feed the animals. And so in modern terms, a man will work hard all day. At the end of the day, there's just enough food for one person. So assuming you still have some care for your family, instead of buying one loaf, you buy three loaves of barley, or maybe you buy a box of saltine crackers, to put it in modern terms. But don't miss this image. A man is going to work all day to have just enough good food for one person, or he can buy enough food that would feed an animal for three. Ladies and gentlemen, this is an awful time. And think about those people who cannot work, who are unable to work. Probably they will starve to death. And the fact that it will take a day's wages to buy such a small amount of food reminds us of the soaring prices that will be in place. The problem of hunger is going to be awful. Verse 6, he then adds and do not damage the oil and the wine. That's an interesting, explicit instruction that God gives to this writer. Do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, unlike wheat and barley that represent the necessities of life, at this time in human history, the oil and the wine represent the luxuries of life. It's the luxuries of the rich. And so the poor will get by with just enough bread, but there will be some who will have oil and wine. Now, I don't know if that will be countries like America and other parts of the world will have less or will be certain communities. Uh, rich is a relative term I recognize, but comparatively speaking, everyone in America compared to the rest of the world is rich. But the point here is you're going to see luxury and poverty existing side by side. Remember Jesus when Four of his disciples approached him on one occasion, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and he sat them there on the Mount of Olives, which is kind of ground zero. It's the mountain of which he ascended into heaven. It's the mountain to which he will literally physically come again. And he reminds us, really, of both of these truths. We will see it, we'll study it further later on, that there will be famine and plenty existing side by side. Jesus, for instance, in likening his return from heaven for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. Two unequal conditions of famine that he mentions earlier in that chapter and plenty existing side by side. Now, unlike the great famine of 1315, that affected uh, parts of Europe where the wealthy feasted and the masses starved, this famine will be so widespread and allowing the luxury items to remain, God is going to bring a judgment on the rich. Think about this for a moment. Think your way through this. All the godly rich, and there are many godly rich people, they'll all be gone. They will be raptured. And so the only rich that are left are the selfish, self-centered rich. And can you imagine what people will do to some of those folks? It will be a built-in judgment itself on them. Look what's happening in Venezuela. You know, we're consumed with 
a lot of nonsense in the news, but some of the real tragedy that's going on from day to day, like the hunger in Venezuela and people are slitting each other's throats to get a meal. This is going to happen in a widespread way. There's going to be global turmoil. And you can see how maybe this famine that will come through this rider will actually pave the way for further worldwide control that the Antichrist is going to bring as this seven-year period progresses. There's going to come a time when the Bible says, and he, Revelation 13, 16, the Antichrist, and he causes all the small and the great, the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And many people who are hungry will gladly take that mark. Paul said of unbelievers, their God is their belly. You know, some people live for food. Food is an idol for some people. And when you're hungry, it will become an idol for many people. And people will be willing to take the mark of the beast, 666, in order to be able to buy or sell. Now, Christ, who is the bread of life, he is going to have an imposter who will come in his place, the Antichrist, a counterfeit bread of Christ, who people will serve. So what does this prophecy concerning the rider on the black horse really tell us? It tells us that this will be a time of limited productivity and it will be a time of economic deprivation. This is not the war horse. This is the famine horse and the two are closely connected. It's not by accident that when a nation goes to war, many of the men who would work in the fields are not there to work. And we felt just a small pinch of that in the Second World War, as my parents would tell me of the ration coupons they would have. I want to tell you, it's going to be worldwide. There's going to be limited productivity. There's going to be economic deprivation. And the transportation that would be given priority to transport food from one state from one place to another is going to be used to transport weaponry to defend our nation. This is just the first of the first three horsemen, beginning now in verse 7, and I did that by way of review, and I hope you are getting it. I want you to be able to think your way all the way through the book of Revelation. Why do I want you to know this book so well? Well, you should know the whole Scripture well, but God gives a unique blessing in this book alone for those who will hear and heed and apply this book, they will be blessed. God doesn't do that with any other book in the New Testament but this book, and so you would be wise to really get a hold on this. So beginning now in verse 7, the fourth seal is, un, is broken. And so Jesus unrolls the scroll a little bit further. First, we saw the white horse of deception bringing the Antichrist himself. He was followed by the red horse of destruction bringing bloody war across the planet. The first real world war followed by the black horse of deprivation and destitution bringing famine. Now we come to the pale horse of devastation. When this rider is loose, John first tells us about the breadth of the devastation that he brings. So let's think about the breadth of the devastation he brings. In describing the breadth of the devastation that he carries, different realities are brought out concerning this rider. The first concerns the announcement of devastation. The announcement. Notice now one of the living creatures in verse 7. When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. Now the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, carefully breaks the fourth seal, and He unrolls this scroll just a little bit further. 
And at the same moment, the fourth of God's living creatures, we've studied them. These living creatures are a class of angels, special angels. They are almost perfectly parallel to the cherubim that we studied in Ezekiel's prophecy. He says to the fourth writer, come. Now, I hope you remember these four living creatures. I know the old King James says the fourth beast, but the word beast had a different connotation in the 17th century. This is the word zoa. We get our word zoology, the study of life. This is a zoa angel. This is a living creature. And so he announces, come. The announcement is given. Again, Satan cannot move. Judgments cannot come until God permits it. Now, beyond the announcement, let's think about for just a moment about the color of the devastation, the color of the devastation. At the command of one of God's servants, John tells us, I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. Now, the word ashen is the Greek word chloros, and it's used to describe a yellowish green or a pale gray color in literature both in and outside of the Bible. Uh, The Greek scholar Moffat describes it uh, as the color of a bloodless corpse, and so ashen. In uh, extra-biblical Greek, Homer uses this same Greek word, chloros, to describe someone who's blanched, frightened with fear, and the color kind of goes out of their face. Uh, The chloros horse, the Net Bible renders it the pale green horse. It's the color of chlorine gas. And of course, one of the famous American manufacturers of bleach is called Clorox. You spill a little Clorox on your clothes and the color goes out. If you really want to get a picture, if you see a corpse that has been there for several hours before the uh, people fix it all up and put the makeup on it and everything else, you get a good color of this. This is the color of death. Now, beyond the color of the devastation, let's think about the name of the devastation, the name that is given. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death. The rider of this fourth horse is called Death. And what an appropriate name that God will give him because of the devastation that he brings. There's a chain reaction that is taking place here. The first seal releases the Antichrist on the white horse. After the Antichrist, the second seal is broken, and the rider on the red horse comes. And after that, the famine on the black horse. And now comes, after the famine, death on this ashen horse. And of course, history documents that very often after a war has been completed, sometimes more people die as a result of the consequences of the war than during the war itself. Epidemics break out. But listen, listen to what he says here. I looked and behold an ashen horse, John testifies, and he who sat on it had the name death. Some of you have been to that famous art museum in London where some men in the 1400s and the 14th century over uh, 600 years ago wove together all these tapestries, 472 feet long. It's breathtaking. And what they did was they read the sixth chapter of the Revelation, and then they wove these tapestries together and then sewed them all together, and it's 472 feet long, picturing the four horsemen of the apocalypse. 
But maybe I think one of the most chilling renditions, people have been drawing these horses for centuries. I mean, the four horsemen have become an idiom in English to describe some terrible war, some terrible tragedy. It is just so famous, and so it's often painted. But maybe the most famous one was done by Fujita, a Japanese artist who survived Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Here's a picture of his work. He painted a man's full skeleton grinning rather fiendishly while riding this ashen horse over a field of death. Now remember, it was never ever God's intention for death to come into the world. The Bible says sin entered into the world and death through sin. And of course, a lot of evangelicals have abandoned that truth. Bruce Walkey, a few years ago, a Hebrew scholar, so-called evangelical, now adopts theistic evolution like many local evangelical churches because we want to warm up to the world and buddy-buddy with them. And so now we have death for millions and millions of years before God even creates man. But God is very clear that death enters into the world through sin. There was no death before sin came into the world. It's a byproduct of sin. Matt led us today in that great hymn, Death, Where Is Your Victory? I was riding down the road that we live on, my wife and I, some months ago, and we'd been up and down that road for 27 years, and it just caught my eye with her, and I, there's a graveyard there. I've never seen that before. And we kind of pulled up in that abandoned trailer park, and and there was a graveyard, and some of the graves went back to the 1920s, and some of them went back to just the last year. And one of the gravestones caught my attention. It just had a question on it. Oh, death, where is your victory? God is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Notice what he says. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name death, and Hades was following him. Now, while we're here, let's define some terms because you're all theologians. You either have a stinking rotten theology or a good biblical theology, and I want you to have a good biblical theology. So let's define some terms, okay? First, uh, some terms that relate to judgment for the lost, and then we'll look at some terms as they relate to the saved. In the Scriptures, these are some of the terms that God uses to describe the place of judgment for those who are lost. Sheol, uh, Hades, Gehenna, which is translated hell in the New Testament, the Greek word is Gehenna, the lake of fire, the second death, and eternal punishment. Those are some of the major terms that God uses to describe eternal retribution. Here's some of the names that God uses to describe the blessings that come on the saved at death. Sheol, same term, interestingly, we'll talk about that in a moment. Paradise, Abraham's bosom, the third heaven, heaven itself, by itself, uh, home, the Father's house, and the new Jerusalem. Now, in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the section that we refer to as the Old Testament, they call it the Tanakh, Sheol is a term common to both lists that can be used to describe the place where a believer goes or where an unbeliever goes, and context determines what you have in view. Because as you study the Old Testament and the New Testament that sheds more light on it, you discover that Sheol actually has two compartments to it. What we would call righteous Sheol, where a believer went, and unrighteous Sheol, where an unbeliever went, 
and he continues to go. Uh, let me give you some example. First of unrighteous Sheol. Remember when they were uh, leaving Egypt and they were out in the wilderness for 40 years and Moses was leading the people and there was a rebellion led by a name, guy named Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Abiram and, and they instituted this rebellion. And so Moses basically, he drew a line in the sand. He said, you've got to choose sides. Let me read a portion of the event number 16. Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord, that is Yahweh, has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord." Now, these men are unbelievers. One of them is mentioned in the Acts of the Apostates in the book of Jude, verse 11, and he's still in this place called Sheol. He's still in a place of eternal retribution. Now, the King James, to help you, they don't, in this case, translate as they much interpret, but to help us sometimes in the King James, when unrighteous Sheol is in view, the place where an unbeliever dies, instead of translating it Sheol, they translate it hell. Let me give you an example. In Proverbs 15, 24, Solomon writes, the way of life winds upward for the wise that he may turn away from hell below. And the word hell there is the word Sheol. And so most English translations just say Sheol. But because it's dealing with an unbeliever and it's referring to unrighteous Sheol, the writers of the King James and New King James render it hell. Uh, by contrast, righteous Sheol is the place where a believer dies. Remember Jacob, one of the progenitors of the nation of Israel who had 12 sons who in turn formed the 12 tribes of the nation Israel? Uh, he was told by his other sons that Joseph was dead, eaten by an animal. And in reality, he is, uh, becomes, of course, the prime minister of Egypt. In Genesis 37, we're told that all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So, he, so his father wept for him, for Joseph. Now, Jacob was not going, obviously, to the Sheol of the unrighteous. He was a believer. Other passages remind us that he's in heaven with Abraham. He's in that city that God has prepared. So he didn't go to unrighteous Sheol. He went to righteous Sheol. Now, I raise this particular text for a reason. Because sometimes you will hear pastors and even theologues very sloppily just say, well, Sheol is the place of the grave. It's the place where the body is placed. No, that's not accurate. Sheol best describes the place where the soul goes. Think about this for just a moment. He says, I am going to go and meet Joseph in Sheol. What, his body in the place of a grave? He's under the impression that his body had been eaten by animals, that there was nothing to bury. He was looking forward to being reunited with Joseph as a believer. Now, the word rendered grave in some translations is the Hebrew word sheol, and it describes the place that the soul goes at death. Again, think your way through this. Later on, Genesis chapter 50, Jacob has died, and we're told that he's mummified. We read in 50 and verse 1, then Joseph fell on his father's face 
and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. That's his name, Israel or Jacob. That's what God's people do with those who want to carefully follow the Scripture. They bury their loved ones. Now, he's in Egypt, so it's a little more involved process. He mummifies him. But he doesn't burn him in a furnace. Now, look, if you want to burn your loved one in a furnace, you're welcome to do that, and I will happily serve you, and I won't bring it up at your funeral, all right? And don't think you've got in that little box some special box of ashes of Uncle Ed. Uncle Ed was burned in the same furnace as Aunt Sally and Martha and a hundred other people. You think they go in there and wipe out every single ash from the previous guy? I don't know how many people you got in your little box, but it's not just Uncle Ed. I'm just dealing with you truthfully. But God's people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rebecca, Sarah, Ananias, Sapphira, John the Baptist, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul assumes you bury your loved ones. I just did a funeral for a couple. Audrey and I pray for them almost every day. They lost their 13-month-old little baby. You think they're going to take that little precious girl and burn her in a furnace? Into a piece of ash? Not in your life. Precious little body was laid in the grave. And they kissed that little girl just like Joseph kisses his daddy who's now dead. When God himself does a funeral, the last chapter in the book of Deuteronomy, he, Yahweh, buries Moses. God gave you a pattern. And if you want to do it God's way and you want some punch to your funeral, don't have a picture down here or even a little box. Have a real casket with a real person. It will be your last will and testament to reach some of your loved ones and friends and neighbors who only gather for marriages and funerals. And if the pastor is preaching the word of God, you might win them to Jesus. Now, 40 days were required for it to be mummified. For such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. So there's 40 days for the embalming process, and then another 30 days to mourn. Beyond those 70 days, Pharaoh grants Joseph traveling mercies to take his daddy back to the land of Canaan, to the promised land where he wants to be buried. Now, don't miss this in chapter 49. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he brings them all, blesses them. He drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. I love that. When you add the 70 days and the time it took then to travel to Canaan, another seven days to mourn there in Canaan, obviously several months had gone by. But here's Jacob. He's in his deathbed. He pulls the covers up pulls his feet under the cover, smiles in the face of the Lord, and the Bible says he was gathered to his people. What people? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. In New Testament theology, we'd say he went home to be with the Lord. Now, please do not miss that. He was gathered to his people. He had been dead for two months when he's buried. But the moment he died, he was gathered to his people. He breathed his last. The Hebrew says he, he yielded up his spirit. Ten weeks after he had died, he's buried. Understand Sheol does not underscore so much the place where the body is placed as it does where the soul goes. 
When we conclude our look at the rider on the black horse who symbolizes death, we'll see that Hades, or unrighteous Sheol, will follow this horse. And we'll look at what that means for those left behind following the rapture. To listen again to today's message, The Pale Horse of Devastation, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV17. Join us again tomorrow as we conclude our look at the fourth horseman of the apocalypse and search the scriptures. We'll be right back. 